Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the National Football League. And for those of you who know me and have listened to this podcast for any period of time, you know that there is predominantly one sport that I follow religiously since leaving the United States over 10 years ago, and that's the NFL. My team is the Chicago Bears. So right now, you can probably tell that I'm smiling from ear to ear because my guest today is former Chicago Bear and Jacksonville Jaguar. Eben Britton. And what did we get into? Well, Eben takes us on the journey to the NFL, what it actually took him to make it to the NFL, the role his mother played in that journey, specifically from a spiritual side. Then we get into a number of the injuries that Eben faced in the NFL. And while TBI gets a lot of attention from the NFL these days, Eben had some very specific injuries that warranted prescription meds like opiates. Eben then shares how he found cannabis as an alternative to opiates and what he is doing today as an advocate for cannabis, responsible cannabis use. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Eben, that's E-B-E-N, and enjoy my conversation with Eben Britton. If you were to come to my home office, you would see that I have a variety of blue light blocking glasses on my desk. In fact, there's about five of them in front of me right now. And how do I choose which ones to go to? Well, of course, I'm rigorous in all of my testing. There are simple ways to test this, but there's also people out there who've done quite a lot of research, and I encourage you to read some of that research. Guys like Andy Mant at Blue Blocks, Matt Maruka at Raw Optics are two of my favorites. But today's spotlight goes to Matt, and I just want to say, Hell, they did a great job in redesigning their frames. Raw Optics sent me two of their glasses, both the daytime and nighttime versions, and I enjoy them so much. In fact, their daytime versions are glasses that I wear well right now in front of my computer, but all the time. I kind of like impersonating Tony Stark in a way. If you want to get yours, head on over to rawoptics.com, raw as in the Egyptian sun god, raoptics.com, and use the code BOOMER, B-O-O-M-E-R, and you're going to get yourself a fat discount. Let's get back to the episode. Evan, welcome. Hey, brother. Thank you for having me. Okay, so there's going to be a number of people listening to this that are going to recognize the name. And people listening to the show know that I'm a diehard Bears fan, so I'm a little bit giddy right now. <laughs> but before we get into your your sports career, uh, I know that we're we're going to go all over the map today. But uh, one of our mutual friends, Len May, uh, seated me with a question, and I, I wanted to just get a sense from you know growing up, your mom played a particular role in your life as all moms do. And I just want to understand just sort of how she helped you develop into the individual that you are today. Mm. 
it's a great place to start. <laughs> she brought me into this world, so I yeah, guess I guess that's the that's the, <laughs> the big thing. Um, when I start talking about who I am now, how I think about the world, whether that relates to cannabis advocacy or my life in football or my thoughts on the pharmaceutical paradigm that most of the football world functions under, I always start with the fact that I was raised by two very holistically minded people. Mm-hmm. My mother is, for lack of a better term, she's a witch. She's a yogi. She's a, she's a mystic. And she comes from a long line of witches, yogis, mystics. Um, and my dad is as well. My dad is a lifetime athlete. He is not a yogi per se, but he's very much a, a shaman unbeknownst to him. And their way of looking at the world was always food is medicine, exercise to take care of yourself, drink plenty of water, use whatever natural means are available before going to a doctor to be prescribed something, Mm -hmm. some medication or whatever it might be. And that very much influenced my athletic career and my life as an athlete and how I thought about taking care of myself. Now, coupling that with the actual practical techniques that began to infuse my athletic career when I started playing football at the age of 13, it was almost simultaneous that my mom started taking my brother and I to yoga classes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a, as a 12 year old, 13 year old kid, I got a lot out of it. You know, I didn't always love it, but I really appreciated it. And it was this, like the first yoga class we, we, I was born in New York city, lived in Brooklyn till I was 10. My mom moved my brother and I out here to Los Angeles when I was about 10 years old, the first yoga class I went to might've been even before I started playing football actually, but it was in this really dark church room, uh, at this, at this church off, uh, Hollywood and Highland. And it was with this, the, the yoga instructor was this guy, Rudy Mattia, who's a ex special forces turned yogi. And immediately it like clicked that this was, this was a warrior's practice and it was super hard. It was super challenging. I really loved how Rudy took us through this thing because he turned this seemingly in my young mind, this sort of feminine art, he made it really masculine and warrior oriented. Mm -hmm. So I always had that that foundation. And as I started to play football and yoga really became a part of my, it you know, I was lucky. My mom, my mom has, that's a whole podcast in itself. My mom is a, a incredibly intuitive master healer, body worker. Um, she works with some very elite level people to help them deal with all sorts of things, physical, emotional trauma, releasing them from it. And her practice is very somatically oriented. So 
the emotional body and the physical body are blended into one, you know, in this physical vehicle that we transport ourselves in around during throughout our lifetime it carries all the emotional trauma that we take on and we pick up throughout our lives and it gets locked in our muscles and our joints and all kinds of things and it manifests itself in all different all different ways and that's really her forte and that was so important during my football career playing this sport where i endured immense amounts of physical damage and trauma um, but because of the foundation of yoga and this holistically, holistically oriented philosophy about how to take care of yourself as an athlete, first of all, I had an incredible sense of the body and how it works. I remember I had these massive growth spurts mm -hmm. when I was a kid and my back would just go out 13 years old back would go out. Wow. I wouldn't be able to walk. And it was really because my body was growing so fast. I think from like sixth grade to eighth grade, I grew a foot in about 18 months. Wow. And my body was just in utter turmoil. You know, I couldn't walk through a doorway without banging both shoulders on the way through. You know, I could barely chew gum and, and walk down the sidewalk, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, but so she always just like she would she would say okay my back would go out she'd say eb get on the floor do these exercises and within 10 minutes i'd get up and the pain would be gone my back would be reset and this is just a, a microcosm of her grand understanding of how the human body works and it really was a blessing for me during my football career because I started dealing with subluxation in my shoulders and back herniated discs and all kinds of things started happening because this is what happens when you play football and i always knew how to remedy it whether it was exercises stretches yoga postures whatever it might be there was this very fundamental intuitive understanding of how the body moves and functions kinesiologically and my mom was really the the foundation of that um so all of that to say, the things that my mom had me doing when I was 13 years old and starting off on my football career made me super resilient and gave me my body this durability that carried me really all the way through until my NFL career. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel really blessed to have had her and, and these parents. My dad has a morning routine that he's 63 and he's done his core work, his stretching, his, his running and his, you know, 200 pushups every day since I've known him. And, uh, you know, this was really fundamental in my, my development as a young athlete. What made you decide football was the path for you at the age of 13? Because I, I know growing up, there are times where you know, I was offered, and I think I did play football before then, but at the age of 13, what made you decide like, hey, this is it for me? Well, it really started when I was about seven or eight. And I was at my grandparents' house and my parents got divorced when I was seven. There was a lot of darkness in my childhood, a lot of alcoholism, substance abuse, 
uh, physical and emotional abuse. Um, and part of that was my brother and I, we'd go spend entire summers up in Connecticut with my grandparents. And up there in the area also lived my dad's three brothers, my three uncles, who I, I equate to being saints because they really were the saviors of my brother and I during our a really um, dark childhood. And we, we would basically just go play sports all day, every day. We'd go to the park, we'd shoot hoops, we'd throw the football around, we'd hit baseballs. We did it all. Uh, I mean, my my uncle Rob, he would say, you guys are going to OD on sports. It was pretty funny. It was always the running joke. And um, so I had this like, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit, I had this really beautiful blend of artists and athletes in my family. <laughs> and it was a really synergistic, wonderful way to grow up, aside from the darkness. Um now, that being said, so I was about seven or eight years old, and it was summertime at my grandparents' house in Connecticut, and I'm watching the news, and up pops uh, a segment on the Jets and the Giants in training camp. Mm -hmm. And I saw it, and immediately I just thought, my God, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be one of those warriors. I want to be one of those gladiators on the gridiron. Mm -hmm. I saw them in their pads and their helmets, and they looked fucking heroic and I just, I somehow it just planted this perfect seed in my psyche of this was my way out of the darkness mm -hmm. and football really. And so my mom would never let me play. She was like, you're going to get hurt. Uh, it's too dangerous. Finally, my freshman year of high school. So six years later, six or seven years later, finally, I convince her with the help of my dad to let me play my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. um, and from that moment on, really from the first moment I stepped on the football field, I was surrounded by a lot of great people, these coaches who, who said, Eb, if you work really hard and you give it everything you got, you're physically gifted. You can play on Sundays. You could buy your mom a house. You can do all those things that you've ever dreamed of. And so I really started this process looking back. It was the process of visualization and manifestation because I held this image of myself in my mind's eye of the NFL warrior that I would one day become. Mm -hmm. And everything I did, how I carried myself, how I trained, how I ate, how I, how I lived was all in alignment of reaching the top of this mountain, which was playing in the NFL. And then coupling that with some great, great parents who believed in me and had the this athletic know-how to give me the structure underneath all of the sort of God-given ability and then my mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and then football became a vehicle of therapy for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it became a vehicle for me to get all of this rage that I had from being a scared little kid I got to put it out there on the field. I got to be really violent. That was always the that was always the the token of my game. That's how I got to the NFL. I was super physical and I was celebrated for it, you know? And I I climbed this ladder of success and football really was this way for me to express all of this 
shit that was happening inside of me at that time. That's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that. It's something that just really resonates with me because my mother was a yoga teacher. My dad was in finance. He mm. had a slightly different background, but it's just, she was by no means a mystic, but I could see how, you know, the sports would be in a way to unleash uh, that, that really resonates. Now, mm. Eben, I, there is something about the particular position that you went into the NFL. And I've watched a few documentaries on this about people training to go onto the line. And, you know, when they go into high school, they put on enormous amounts of weight. And there's so few people that make it to college and then again to the NFL. And as a result, they end up with lots of um, health issues just because of being so large or just putting on so much weight. Mm -hmm. Now for you, you were able to make it to that one-tenth of 1% or whatever the, the probability is. Now, was it the mindset, the image in the mind's eye that separated you from the, the rest? Or what were you doing in this sort of leading up to getting in the NFL and even in the NFL to push yourself above the rest? Mm. A great question. Um, you know, it was really, like I said, I was really blessed to be surrounded by people who really understood nutrition, the importance of food. So my food, my eating was always really dialed in. Mm -hmm. I was always super lean for my position. You know, yes, I would be 310 pounds, but I was only eight, 18% body fat. Wow. I was super lean, super strong. Training was of the utmost importance. Not only did throughout high school, did I train with the, with the team, but my mom also hooked me up with a personal trainer and we were doing yoga. So I was getting 360 attention training, um, practice at being the best football player I could possibly be. Um, in college, you know, going to a division one school, I played at the university of Arizona. We had an elite level strength and conditioning program. So the sort of exterior stuff sort of fell away. I did practice a little bit of yoga still then. Um, but as I got bigger, and my body started to fill out. Yoga really started to hurt and I started to hate it. Mm -hmm. So towards really when I got to the NFL, I, I did yoga only a few times my first couple of years and these injuries started to pile up. And I think, you know, there's definitely a correlation there between not doing the, the necessary recovery work and the injuries starting to pile up as my mm -hmm. career went on. Um, but so it was, it was a, you know, it was a confluence of events and circumstances and, um, uh, you know, genetics. I'm physically, I was physically gifted. I would say, you know, my dad is 6'6", 200 pounds built. He's, he was a basketball player. My mom is 5'2" about 120 pounds, but she's built like a gymnast mm -hmm. and like broad shoulders, really strong body. 
And I got the height of my dad and I got the physicality of my mom, which made, which gave me a great framework, physical framework to play the position of offensive line. <laughs> Coupling that with really good nutrition, like very little sugar. I mean, my mom would send me to school with fucking Tupperwares with chicken breasts and brown rice and broccoli, you know, mm-hmm. and as much as I detested that at times, and just wanted a slice of pizza. Like I ate it because that's what, well, that's what I had. And I had this, you know, between my parents, my trainers, my football coaches, I just had this little voice in my head that was like, Ed, this is the food. This is the fuel you need to eat. And food is always kind of, I've always had this relationship with food where it's more about the fuel than it is about the mouth pleasure, mm-hmm. um, which served me very well throughout my football career. Now, down the line towards the end of my NFL career, when shit started falling apart and, that, and my body wasn't doing what it was, what it used to do, I started to put on a lot of weight. I got, mm-hmm. I got out of shape. Really? I mean, by the end of my time in Chicago, I was 330 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And that had to do with a lot of uh, good Italian food in Chicago. Of course. Trying to, you know, numb the pain through food um, and alcohol for the, for, you know, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it wasn't, you know, for, for 90% of my football career, my ability to stay healthy and my ability to um, just endure the trauma and to continue climbing that ladder had much to do with all those little things, you know, the cliche things, eating right, taking really good care of my body. I got weekly massages. I was always getting in the ice tub, um, doing everything I could to keep my body um flushing all of those toxins and all of that stuff that builds up through that through the the trauma of football yeah so you mentioned something earlier and, and i, I want to get I'll into say the this, sorry boomer go, one last no, thing is i fucking loved it i just yeah. loved it you know and and football is a really hard game mm-hmm. an offensive line and defensive line Offensive line, even more so, is a really, it's maybe the most difficult position to play because you're never getting the, you never get the credit that you deserve Mm -hmm. and you're always getting the blame that you don't deserve. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those positions where you really just have to, I just love the physical combat. Like Mm -hmm. I got high on kicking the shit out of people and even getting my (laughs) ass kicked. You know, like I enjoyed that. And I've had really funny conversations with other former NFL veterans who say, Eb, what do you miss the most? And we all kind of simultaneously say, obviously, you miss the locker room and you miss the camaraderie and you miss the tribe. But you miss the pain more than anything, because the pain Mm -hmm. gave you this really twisted sense of purpose and belonging. You know that yeah. doesn't really exist in the in the real world. So uh, I would say that was kind of the love of the game, and just kind of this sick love for the violence of it is kind of the magic dust that makes it all work. From that point, I've got goosebumps when you say that. <laughs> I was never I was never big enough to be an NFL player, and uh, you know it's just kind of very interesting to hear you go through that and. 
see how somebody can make it to such an elite level. Now, the question on my mind and everybody's mind when it comes to your NFL career, of the teams you play for, which one did you enjoy most, if you're allowed to say? And then was there any particular person that you enjoyed facing off against, either because they pushed you to another level or it was just a challenge or you just... You got those goosebumps that you just alluded to when it came to the pain aspect of it. Um, I liked Jacksonville, but you know, it's, it's a really, it's a tough organization to play for. Um, There's a culture and energy are very real things in the NFL and how, and in this, and, and have a very real impact on the success of all NFL teams. Um, football is the ultimate team game and it's also the ultimate energy game. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Jacksonville, it always felt like we were up against ourselves. You know, it seemed there was a, there's a very, there's this, sort of undertone moving through everyone in the locker room and, and really kind of the entire organization of we all wish we were somewhere else, Mm -hmm. which makes it really difficult to be successful. Yeah. And especially, you know, football is a tough, is a tough game. Like I said, it's even tougher when you're not winning. And uh, we had my first couple of years in Jacksonville, we had some really competitive, tough teams. Um, we were we were very competitive and a very tough team. Um, but it really sort of started to fall apart. And it's all top down. You know, it starts with the owner and the energy of the owner trickles down into the front office and the energy of the front office trickles down in the coaching staff and the coaching staff energy trickles down in the players. And that, that is the soup that makes up whether a team is able to win games and make the playoffs and go to the Super Bowl. I, unfortunately, over my six-year career, we never made the playoffs. I, it was kind of my cross to bear throughout my football career of being on on these football teams that just could never really seem to get over the hump. The best team mm-hmm. I ever played on was my last year at Arizona. We went eight and five. And we beat BYU in the Las Vegas Bowl, which was a, a magical year. Um, so that being said, I really loved playing in Chicago. Uh, the city loves its sports teams. What I appreciated so much, I, I had such a great appreciation for the fans of Chicago um, and how they treated their athletes and really loved them. And it wasn't this sort of, fanatical worship it was it was a real appreciation for the guys which i loved um i love that city that organization it's one of the oldest um it's it i mean george hallis started the nfl yeah he's he's the one of the he's one of the icons that really built the entire league and it was a special team to play for. We had my first year there, we had a record setting offense. We're one game away from winning the NFC North. Uh, God damn you, Aaron Rodgers! Um, <laughs> in the last game of the year, 
I we lost that. the Packers. It was a it was a heartbreaker. Um, but that was really a special team. There was a lot of good things that happened that year. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the this long the long story short is, while I love the Jags and they'll always have a special place in my heart because they took a chance on me to draft me 39th overall in the second round of the 2009 NFL draft, I really loved playing for the Bears. And that experience in Chicago gave me the the sense of completion that I sort of needed in my football career. Um, that being said, the players every week um, you're going up against fire breathing dragons, uh, just absolute freaks of nature. My great rival. Uh, during my time in Jacksonville was Robert Mathis, who's the defensive end of the Colts. He was opposite Dwight Freeney. Um, and he was just, you know, an all pro, unbelievable player, probably future Hall of Famer, um, you know, who could do it all. He could bull rush you, you know, and step, you know, and bull rush you to the ground and step on your chest on his way to sacking the quarterback. And he had a spin move that was, it was as if he teleported around you. And I always just felt like I brought my A game and never gave a sack up to him. So it was, uh, that was always a special game to play against him because you knew you were going up against the best, the best there is. Amazing. So let's talk about the injuries because the injuries came and there's something you alluded to about the way the NFL traditionally looks at industry or sorry, not industries, injuries Mm. uh, and how they're, they're dealt with. And perhaps I would just love to hear, you know, from your experience, what were some of the things that you went through to the extent you're able to share? And then how did you take a different approach to it? There are some things I can't really explain. And one of those is this green light staring me right in the face right now. The Samovedic came to my house a year ago, and it still runs every single day. I've had Diraj Kochar on the phone and on the podcast before to explain to me exactly how it works. And it uses a combination of precious metals and stones to help mitigate the effects of electromagnetic radiation, to help really structure my water, and Frankly, when I plug it in, I just feel better. Now, again, I'm not exactly sure about how this works and the science behind it, but they seem to have numerous loyal customers, including myself. I plug it in every day because it just adds that extra 2% to the day. You can get yours at somovedic.com and use the code BOOMER for a nice 10% discount. That's somovedic, S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C.com and use the code BOOMER. Time to get on with the show. Yeah. Um, So the, I was super lucky up until the NFL. I didn't sustain many injuries. Um, throughout that being said though, throughout my football career, from the time I was a sophomore in high school, my, my right shoulder would subluxate 
at least once a season where it'd pop in and out of the socket. And it was excruciatingly painful, but it would never fully dislocate. Um, and given the, the foundation that I talked about earlier, I always had a really strong protocol of how to keep, get my shoulder back into shape, tighten up all those little muscles that, you know, keep it tight and secure. Um, and I had a really good regimen for dealing with that. And I would usually, I would never miss a game until finally in my NFL career it was my second year. The first severe injury I really, I really sustained was actually not even, it didn't even happen in a game. It happened in the weight room going into my, my second training camp in 2010. I'd had a great off season, a great spring coaches are like, Eb, you're the fucking golden child. You just really kicked ass this off season. We can tell how hard you've been working. I was in incredible shape and it was two weeks before training camp and we're in the weight room and we're doing these like air squats on this Kaiser machine. Mm -hmm. And I've got like, you know, a thousand pounds of air pressure on this thing. And we're doing these explosive squats, like drop down and explode up. Mm -hmm. And I got in there and I wasn't focused and I dropped down and I feel this like tube of toothpaste squirt in my low back. And I just herniated my disc. I herniated L5S1. Mm. I didn't know what had happened. I, I came out of it and I felt like I'd had my body ripped in half and put, got put back on backwards. Maybe I was like, maybe I just tore my glute. Like, fuck, what happened? I don't, you know, we went out to run sprints afterwards. I'm giving it everything I had. I tear my hamstring on top of that. Come Jesus. into the training room. They're treating me as if I just pulled my hamstring. And I'm going, there's something else here. Finally, they figure out, okay, you you herniated your disc. We'll do this, this, and this. I get I start going on, you know, a super regimented core and stretching protocol, which really was not doing enough because the it was it had created such severe sciatica that I would be just driving in my car. I'd have to pull over because I'd be blinded and with pain and I couldn't feel my right foot on the ground. And then here comes training camp and everybody's going, Ab, what the fuck happened, man? Like you, you just, what happened? You know? And I'm like herniated disc, man, you know? So for basically eight weeks of that season, I'm starting at right tackle. I'm coming into the facility at 5.30 in the morning to do this core and stretching routine to get my back just loosened up to a place where I could sit through meetings, popping these pharmaceutical-grade prescription anti-inflammatories like Cataflam and Indocin to deal with the pain. Um, as the season progressed, I'm taking Vicodin before the game, after the game. So um, you're playing with a herniated disc. Yeah. And I can't, wow. I can barely feel my right foot on the ground. Wow. Um, excruciating sciatica, doing everything I could. It's about week six or seven. We're in Kansas City playing the Chiefs. And uh, it's midway through the second quarter 
and I'm on a run play. It's run blocking. I'm punching up through the defensive end up to the outside linebacker. I, my legs get caught up in this pile. I go down, hit the ground with my arm at a right angle and my shoulder dislocates <laughs> and I get up. I'm like, Oh shit. My shoulder's completely out of the socket. I pop it back in, finish this drive, come out, come to the sideline, yell to the trainer, Hey, I need a shoulder harness. Cause my, I just dislocated my shoulder. It's fine. I got it popped back in. I just need a shoulder harness to, uh, tighten it down so I can get back out there. Cause we're going to get the ball back and go out for a two minute drill. And he's looking at me. <laughs> I love, I love this guy, Justin. He's, he was one of my saviors throughout my time there. And he's like looking at me like, what the fuck? And I go, hurry the fuck up, dude. Cause we're about I, to go I'm out. I'm thinking for two that minutes. right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, hurry up. So it was like a NASCAR, uh, like tire change throw my pads off, slap this shoulder harness on. By the time I get my pads and my jersey back on, we're running out onto the field for this two-minute drill. Get out there. We're, I'm in a pass protection. Second play of the two-minute drive, I go to punch Mike Vrabel, and my shoulder comes out of the socket again. And this time, I can't get it back in because now it's in the harness. So... I have to run off the field. I'm tapping my helmet. I run off the field. My, my backup comes in and it takes the team doctors like three minutes to get my shoulder back into the socket. And they're like, they can't get it back in and they're like pulling it and yanking it. And they're like, Ed, can we get you into the locker room? I'm like, fuck no, just get it in. Finally, it grinds back in. They take me into the locker room give me some meds, probably some more Vicodin. I get a shower, take off my pads. And in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine for next week. I'll be ready for Dallas next week. I go out, watch the second half of the game on the, on the sidelines and in sweats. And it wasn't until after the game that the team doctor came up to me and said, Eb, uh, you know, you, you really dislocated your shoulder badly and you, you need surgery. You're done for the year. And I just totally broke down into tears because for the first time ever, I was told I couldn't play. And I'd never been told that ever. So I go, I have the, I have the shoulder surgery, but remember my back is still a mess. I still have yeah. this excruciating sciatic pain. Um, so I get my shoulder fixed. During this time, I really come to the realization that opiates have a really devastating impact on me. They make me super irritable. Um, uh, like rage is just simmering under the surface. Give me a really short fuse. I'm experiencing withdrawal symptoms after like three days of prescribed usage, waking up at two, three o'clock in the morning with shooting pains in my gut, cold sweats, chills, all of those things. My body just craving more of these pills. And really I'm not, they're not doing anything for the pain. Um, so that was, you know, and here I am in a very vulnerable state. I can barely get dressed on my own. I need my mom and then my girlfriend to help me do all sorts of things. And um, I remember I would take these pills and they'd be helping me like tie my shoes and I'd be getting pissed off at them. 
you know, and I was like, whoa, this is not me. You know, this is not who I am. And so through that experience, through the experience of really dealing with these injuries and having this sort of quiet time to, to really get to be confronted with what these opiates were doing to me, I realized by the end of my NFL career, I wasn't taking any more opiates and I just really surrendered completely over to cannabis. So Mm -hmm. through that process, you know, coming from this holistically minded upbringing, like I said, cannabis was always in there because I realized during my college career, and it was much more difficult to navigate the drug testing protocols in college than it was in the NFL, I realized that cannabis was this thing that when I consumed it, I would get a really good night's sleep. I felt decompressed emotionally and physically, and I'd wake up the next day feeling rejuvenated and ready to go. Mm-hmm. So I started applying that in my NFL career. And in the NFL, you only get tested for cannabis once. It's uh, under their substance of abuse test, which happens once a year. And you get tested sometime between the first week of reporting back to the facility in the spring to about the first week of training camp. So you have like a five to six month window. So they telegraph the window. Yeah. Yeah. Basically it's, if you're paying attention, it's pretty easy to navigate. Um, so I understood that. And so cannabis during that time really became my go-to source of pain management because I realized the opiates are making me insane and not doing anything for the pain. Meanwhile, I can come home and consume this cannabis. I can get a good night's sleep. I can decompress. I can connect with my loved ones and I'm not feeling insane. Uh, And I wake up the next day feeling rejuvenated. So Mm -hmm. it very intuitively became my go-to source of pain management. So after that shoulder injury, I'm done for the year. Back is still a mess. That off-season is the lockout in 2011. The the NFL owners locked out the players because we couldn't come to terms on a new uh, collective bargaining agreement. So I actually went back to Arizona, finished my degree, did rehab on my shoulder with my old college athletic trainers, but my back is still a mess. It's, it's not getting any better, maybe even getting worse. Finally, we come back to training camp in August, collective bargaining agreement gets signed, players come back, we start in training camp. My shoulder's better. My back is still a mess. I'd go in for two plays, had to come out because I couldn't feel my leg, my right leg. At this point, I've done a number of epidural injections in my back, which did nothing, <laughs> which for anybody listening who's considering that, uh, I I would say don't waste your time. Run the um, Yeah, um, because they literally did nothing. I had three of them. They're painful to have done, and really I got no relief from it whatsoever. So finally, we're in training camp going through this thing. My bot, you know, I can't feel my right foot. I'm playing right tackle. It's a big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I'm starting at right tackle. And my head coach, Jack Del Rio, who I love to death, he comes up to me, he says, Eb, man, we really need you this year. And I think it's best if you just go and have back surgery. It's a quick recovery. You can go and have it and you'll be ready for the time season starts. And uh, I think we, you know, there's no sense in continuing to try to put these band-aids on this thing. And I really appreciated that. Like maybe the next week I, I went and had back surgery, flew up to North Carolina, to see this guy, Dr. Brigham, who was one of the best back surgeons in the, in the world. Went up, had this back surgery. Immediately, I felt relief. I woke up out of surgery and it was like my life had changed. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like somebody pulled the piece of glass out of the electrical circuit of my body. And all of this tension that I had built up over years of dealing with this herniated disc was just gone, you know, and I could have cried. It felt so good. Work my way back. I'm starting again by basically, I think basically by week one. It was a quick recovery. I got really strong, really fast, came back, was kicking ass, playing really hard was having as good, if not better of a season than my rookie year. And I had a really solid, a really good rookie season. Um, So I'm back, I'm playing well. Coaches are like, dude, you're having an all pro style year. Like that's, this is who we know. We knew you had this, you know, this is who you are. And it's weak. So it's 11 weeks after surgery, probably about midway through the season again, And we're in Pittsburgh to play the Steelers and I wake up in the hotel room and I can barely get out of bed because my back is seizing up. Wow. And, uh, I'm like, Oh shit. You know, I I don't know what's going on. I, I make my way to the team team meal. I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll be fine. I'll get this loosened up. I'll pop some pills. We'll, you know, I'll be ready to roll by game time. Um, my back is super tight. It's in a total spasm. Get to the facility. Um, have my my athletic trainer. He's he's putting stem and heat on it. He's using like the Theragun on it. Doing all kind. Doing every modality you could possibly think of to get my back yeah. loosened up. By the end of it, he probably gave me thirty minutes to an hour of treatment. <laughs> and I went to get off the table and I, I could, I could barely get up Yeah, because my back was still seizing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, okay. I'll be fine. I go over to my locker, lie down on the ground to do some of these stretches that I've been doing since I was, you know, 10 years old with my mom and, uh, just nothing's going on. I'm looking up at the ceiling all of a sudden, the head coach, offensive coordinator, and my O-line coach appear, and they go, Eb, you going to be all right? Can you go? And I'm like, yeah. And I couldn't get up off the ground. They're like, all right, Eb, you're done for the day. Uh, wow. You're not going to play today. It's okay. I mean, I was in such a spasm. I thought, did I crack my hip? Do I have something broken in my body? Like, it's just, it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So I didn't play that day. Coaches were like, Hey man, you've been working your ass off. Maybe we took it. We pushed it too hard over the last month. 
you know, maybe we're just going to give you a week off, just rest, recover, let that thing get settled down. They put me on some, some sort of like steroid pack, mm-hmm. um, to, I don't even looking, looking back, I don't even know what the hell that, that was supposed to do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, throughout my upbringing and my life in football, which I, like I said, is so the, the recovery department is so heavily influenced by the pharmaceutical paradigm. Like I had a pretty good understanding of chemicals and what they're supposed to do in the body. And looking back, I don't know what that steroid pack was supposed to do. Stimulate blood flow, activate the muscles in the area. I don't know. Um, so I take a week off. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's kind of getting better. It's kind of loosening up, but still like it was Monday morning after my week off and I park in the player's parking lot and I'm walking into the facility and I have such a bad back spasm that I'm brought to my knees in the parking lot. And some of my teammates had to like literally walk me into the facility, brought me into the training room. They're like, what's going on? I'm like, I just, my back just spasmed, completely gave out. I couldn't even walk. So it's starting to seem like something else is happening. Yeah. We go and do an MRI. Nothing comes up. Keep going. Might have put me on another steroid pack. I don't know. Keep going. Still like nothing's really working. Get another MRI like a week or so later. Nothing again. But something's wrong. Something's off. Finally, get a third MRI. And this is basically now like a month since the Steelers incident. It's really early in the morning. I go and do this MRI. And they, after the MRI, they bring me back into this this examination room, which they had never done before. Mm-hmm. And they're being like really cryptic. And they're like, you need to wait here. The doctor's coming to talk to you. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, um, could, because our trainer was supposed to pick me up after the MRI. And I'm just like, what's going on? Finally, this doctor comes. Excuse Luna. Um, no, it's all good. This doctor comes and he says, Ed, there's an infection in your disc. and i was like okay uh what does that mean he says well we're gonna have to admit you to the hospital we're gonna do some tests and uh you'll be you know i don't know if you'll ever be able to play football again and i was like dude go fuck yourself go fuck yourself first of all and i i was like i never want to see that and this is like the back specialist of the team and i was like i never want to see that fucking guy ever again and i didn't um they admitted me to the hospital i'm in the hospital all weekend they end up doing a biopsy on the disc uh Ouch. which is sitting which is in there now it takes another they let me go from the hospital because the biopsy yeah they wanted to do a biopsy on me like that day and Mm -hmm. they're like ev we can't give you any uh 
anesthesia because you've eaten. Uh, so we'd have to do the biopsy on you just awake and raw. I'm like, fuck that. You know, I've been through enough. I, I you're, you're going to put me out for that thing. Yeah. So they're like, well, we, you know, we have to, uh, you know, if we're going to do it, the anesthesia, the, the guy who does it is here today and he won't be back till Monday. So you'd have to just wait the whole weekend. I'm like, fine, fine. I guess I'm here all weekend then. So I was in a hospital for the whole weekend on Monday, they, they, you know, juice me up. I get the twilight. They take me down to do a biopsy, do the biopsy. I'm in there like another couple days and nothing. Nothing's coming up. The biopsy is negative. They're like, eh, you know, uh, I don't know what to say. The infectious disease guy is is saying, you know, it looks okay. It's not staph. It's not MRSA. It's, you know, it seems like I don't know what's going on, but nothing's coming up in this in this biopsy. Wow. So they send me home. And a few days after that, finally I get a call that they were going to throw out the culture and something had appeared. And so they call me in, they figure out that it was this super low virulent bacteria, this bacteria with a super low virulence. They, they eventually said that it was the same bacteria that causes acne had gotten in there. Wow. And um, I had to go on eight weeks of intravenous antibiotics so I was done for the season again. A nurse would come to my house every day and inject me with these antibiotics. Um, I lost a ton of weight, but, you know, for a minute I was, you know, I, I was dealing with lower body paralysis. I couldn't walk around my house for more than two minutes before my legs gave out. I had to like hold myself up on the sink to wash my hands. Mm. I was a mess, man. But still in my head, I'm like, I'll be fine. I'll work back from this. So that year, the year comes to an end. The team gets sold. The head coach gets fired. New team owner. They bring in a new head coach. Come in, come back, work my ass off. Come back for my fourth year. Um, and it just like kind of the whole team fell apart. I got benched halfway through the season uh, in a year that, you know, I mean, I, I needed a, like a year to recover, to get my body back. And I just, <laughs> and I did the best I could. And, you know, I wasn't the player I had come into the league as in that season. Um, and that was really finished that year in Jacksonville finished up my contract there and really felt like I might be done playing football. Mm -hmm. I just lost that love. I was talking about, I really lost it. And the coaches yeah. and being benched was, uh, was soul crushing for me because football had been my life. This community had been my family, the coaches, my father figures, like I gave everything I had and I got benched and nobody could tell me why nobody would talk to me about it. No one, you know, it was like, I went from being the golden child to the exiled, you know, uh, invalid. And mm -hmm. it was completely, it destroyed me. 
you know, <laughs> mentally, physically, spiritually, it completely destroyed me. I was ready to be done. I had a few conversations with some people that were very close to me, my wife, my dad, uh, one of my teammates, Brad Meester, who ended up playing 14 years center for the Jags. And it was really Brad who said, Ed, you know, give it one more shot, man. Give free agency a shot. Maybe you sign with a team and you find your love for the game again. Maybe you, you know, go sign with another team and you realize that you really are done. And there you go. You know, you have it. Um, you have your answer. So I took his advice. You had to work out with the Seahawks. They didn't sign me. Went and worked out with the Bears like the next day. They wanted to sign me right away. Uh, and then just took it kind of one day at a time, found my love for the game, had a really magical year, had great, great people. It was really fun to be a part of that organization, carved out mm -hmm. a nice niche for myself as this sixth man swing tackle, also monster tight end. So I'd come in and play 20 to 30 <laughs> snaps a game and really dominate. And uh, the I think the it was either the Tribune or is it the Chicago Sun-Times? Mm -hmm. one of those wrote a really big article about me when I came into the game, how the offense was 20 to 30% more productive. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was, you know, sort of the year I needed to re-inspire me in my football life. So there was obvious, those were the major injuries. I mm -hmm. definitely suffered a handful of concussions. Yeah. Uh, torn muscles, you know, all the, all the typical stuff, rolled ankles, um, busted fingers, all that, uh, my neck hurt just about every day. Mm -hmm. Um, but those were really the major injurious events that I dealt with during my football career. And, and certainly some significant ones at that, uh, and, you know, Evan, I, I'm just kind of curious because obviously you become a, an advocate for cannabis. And uh, during your time in the NFL, were you predominantly using THC or were you also using CBD? Uh, because, I mean, there's the, the question of legalization we'll get to later. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm also curious what percentage, uh, what percentage of other NFL athletes are also using cannabis as sort of a substitute for opiates. I'd say at least 50% of guys in the NFL are using cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, one of my teammates in Chicago, Martellus Bennett, a good buddy of mine, he, when he came out of the league, he said that he thought 75% of guys were using cannabis, um, mm -hmm. which may be correct. Um, I used, you know, this was 2009 to 2014, and I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and Chicago, Illinois, yeah. and I did not have access to all of what, the, yeah. the wonderful the... products. So I was really, I was buying a bag of wheat, you know? Mm -hmm. I had a trusted dealer who I was spending way too much money, uh, and I'd get an ounce at a time, <laughs> and I would smoke it, you know? I mm -hmm. smoked it, and I got, eventually I got a vaporizer, um but I was just smoking cannabis and getting a lot of THC, maybe a little bit of CBD. Um, and, you know, I didn't even really, at that time I was working mostly on intuition. I hadn't really dove into the science behind it. I knew how it made me feel. I knew that it made me 
just gave me something that the pills really couldn't. I felt rejuvenated and I felt like it healed my body and it blanketed the pain and it and it decompressed the stress that I was under on all levels, physically, mm -hmm. emotionally. Um, and so it wasn't really, so when I came out of my football career and I very organically fell into cannabis advocacy, I wrote an article for SI.com and I talk about dealing with injuries, the pill protocols that are very common. I mean, 98% of guys in an NFL locker room are taking, are on some sort of pharmaceutical anti-inflammatory regimen daily. Of course. Whether yeah. that's Cataflam, Indocin, Advil, you know, you, you just, you're just taking it just to sustain you know, just mm -hmm. to deal with the, all the nicks and the bumps and the bruises that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's not even talking about the opiates that come in as you get older and as the season goes on. You know, every guy is taking these, these pills all the time, every single day. Um, now, opiates, most guys aren't taking opiates every day, but you're probably taking them once or twice a week. Yeah before games, after games, whatever it might be, on top of the anti-inflammatories. And these things just wreak havoc on your digestive system, on your liver and kidneys. And I mean, there's very, there's tons of stories of very young guys, mid, mid to late thirties, dealing with liver and kidney failure, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote an article talking a lot about that. I talked a little bit about my use of cannabis and how I felt like it helped me during my football career dealing with injuries and in my transition out of out of football and somewhere along the line I had always been you know it had kind of been part of locker room conversation about why is cannabis illegal it's yeah. so much better for you than x y and z it's the only thing, you know, I had conversations with many guys during my career. Of, it's the only thing I use after games that I feel like makes me feel better. Yeah. So those conversations were definitely happening. Um, I remember from the time I was even at Arizona in college, seeing my good friend who was one of my heroes growing up, this guy, Kyle Turley, who was doing interviews on ESPN on outside the lines with Bob Lee talking about how cannabis needed to be allowed for NFL players dealing with concussions and how it was really the only medicine that football players should be using, you know, to deal with, with the, the issues that we're all experiencing during football. Um, so I had that. And then after my career, I write this article and my agent reaches out to me and says, hey, man, Kyle Turley wants to connect with you. I think you guys would have a lot to talk about. Um, is it cool if I introduce you? And I'm like, hell yeah, dude. I, that's mm -hmm. my childhood hero, like the prototype of who I wanted to be as a young offensive lineman. Um, so I get connected with Kyle. Kyle says, Eb. I'm putting on a, a cannabis and sports panel in Phoenix at this cannabis conference next month. I would love for you to be there. Come speak, tell your story, and uh, 
I'd love for you to check out this, the, this group, this community that I'm putting together. I said, yeah, man, sure. I'd love to. And, and at that time I, I wasn't really sure, you know, I've always been a truth teller. I've always been, you know, they used to tell me in the PR people in the locker room, like, Eb, you're so good in interviews because you're so honest. And so this has always kind of been my thing and it's transcended mm-hmm. out, out of my football career. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to come tell my story. I don't know exactly what, what purpose it'll serve at this stage. I'm not even, I'm still a little bit ashamed talking about my cannabis use because I was always a team leader and a team captain and the guy that coaches look to, to set the example for everyone else. So I kept my cannabis use super private Mm -hmm. um, aside from, you know, the little group of guys that we'd go and smoke together, like after practice or after games or whatever it was. So I was very wary of, of talking about it and being open about it, but I thought, Hey man, this is where the universe is leading me. So you know, I don't have anything else going on. And in a time when I was really desperate to reimagine myself in life after football, I took it as a sign from the universe. Hey, let's go meet Kyle and speak on this panel. So I fly to Phoenix. Um, there I meet Nate Jackson, who be, who's a, another former NFL player who played tight end for the Broncos for six years, had written, mm-hmm. was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, was also had been doing this cannabis speaking on like Deadspin and some stuff with Vice. And then Ricky Williams, who, of course, is sort of the, you know, he's the, he's the guy when you think of cannabis and football. Um mm. And his whole story, and I always admired Ricky, and I really admired Nate because I'd come across his work too, sort of just cosmically. So it's Kyle Turley, myself, Nate Jackson, Ricky Williams, and we go into this conference hall, fast forward, go into this conference hall to speak on this panel of cannabis and football. And it's like five to 700 people in this conference hall, massive, and I'm kind of awestruck and blown away. And I finished telling my story about how I used cannabis during my football career. And I feel like it really helped me deal with injuries. And it was a much better alternative to opiates. And I feel like I'm better for it uh, coming out of my football career than had I not used it. And I finished telling my story. And I'm looking around this room and there's cancer survivors and military veterans and these uh, families, uh, mothers with children who suffer these severe seizure syndromes like Dravet's, um, where they've gone from having a thousand seizures a week to one or two seizures a month, thanks to yeah. cannabis oils. And I'm just kind of, my, my mind is blown at the scope of people who this plant has had a positive effect on. And this is all starting to coagulate in me like, wow how important it is that NFL guys are willing to speak about the medicinal benefits of cannabis given the platform that we have had and and the exposure that we've had to speak on this plant as medicine and how it's validating these stories for all of these people and giving credibility to this, this thing. 
that really, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous that NFL players, you know, are, are the ones giving, you know, validity to something that's ancient and so important to the existence of humankind. Mm-hmm. But this is all starting to come together. And then Kyle Turley starts talking and he opens it up with, the federal government has a patent on cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants, patent 6,630,507. And it's literally like my mind is completely blown. I'm my entire experience as an athlete is crystallized in this moment and validated and legitimized. And my intuition for all these years that was so wrapped in shame and sort of darkness because I was using this thing that I had perceived as illegal, that I had perceived as this street drug, but I was using it intuitively to heal the pain that I was experiencing. Now I'm finding out that the federal government, the same institution that has criminalized this plant and made it illegal, and classified it as a Schedule One narcotic, which means it has no medicinal benefits whatsoever and you can't study it. They have a patent on this thing as neuroprotectants and antioxidants, which means they've seen in some fashion through some sort of studies and research that the chemical compounds found in this plant actually help the brain heal from damage and can protect the brain from damage before it occurs. And I'm just, I'm like, what the fuck? What is going on? And then he goes on to say that every living creature on this planet has an endocannabinoid system, Mm -hmm. a system in our body that interacts with the chemical compounds found in the cannabis plant. And we ourselves produce our own cannabinoids to facilitate all of these processes like our mood, our sleep rhythms, our appetite, and how we feel and deal with pain, among other things. Mm-hmm. And it just lit this fire of passion, of knowledge seeking. You know, from that moment, I thought, I need to learn everything I can about the science of this plant and the history of it, because this is so much more important than I ever realized. Um, and that was really the beginning of this journey in my life after the NFL. Um, and, uh, it's been really, it's been, it's been a wild ride, man. And it's been really interesting to see the, the evolution of this conversation from that point. Cause that was in 2015. Yeah. And this topic was still, you know, I did tons of interviews and I was still being met with confusion and, a lot of resistance, I imagine. Yeah, tons of resistance. People are like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I felt like I had really alienated myself from my whole football community, from high school coaches all the way through the NFL. Um, but something in me was like, this is truth, man. Like, this is so the more I learned, the more validated I was in the truth of this thing. And I just thought to myself, I, you know, if I do nothing else, just speaking on my experience with this plant to illuminate the truth around what it is and how it benefits us as human beings, Mm -hmm. that's my purpose right now, you know? And that led me 
to pretty much everything I'm doing now. And, and all of that, all of that, uh, sort of underlying shame and inner turmoil around it, that inner conflict around, Oh, upsetting high school coaches and upsetting all these people. That's all been remedied over the last few years when all of these guys have started reaching out to me going Eb, you know, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. It's so true. We've known this, like I've, I've experienced this myself. It's been so beneficial. You opened my eyes to this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been really incredible, you know, to experience all of that. Evan, you know, there's a number of other topics I want to go down with you and sort of go down a number of different wormholes on. We haven't even gone into spirituality and plant medicine and those things, <laughs> but we may, we may have to do, just in the interest of time. And I don't want to take too much more of yours to save that for a round two, but uh, maybe just perhaps a, a wrap up question, because this has been a beautiful conversation and I'm really excited that you're out there really pounding the pavement on this one, because I didn't, wasn't in the NFL I was in finance and there's certainly a lot of people using a lot of substances there, but I think yeah. there's this, this dogma that exists around cannabis and exists around plant medicines that needs to be removed because mm. the fact is it's probably safer than the predominant drug of use in finance, which is alcohol. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, I guess to wrap this up, one last question for you is what excites you the most about the cannabis world right now? Mm. I would say the, the deconstruction of the old paradigm uh, that's, that's crumbling not only in the psyche and consciousness of the collective human organism, but even in our government bodies and, uh, you know, whether that's states, uh, the country, America in particular, um, in the world, you know, I think that since starting on this journey and I've, it's, it's been really, an honor to stand with these people and to meet these, these people who are so inspiring, empowering, standing in their truth, speaking their experience into the world to make it a better place to expand the understanding around, around these things. Um, you know, there's a long way to go. I think we've, uh, I always, uh, you know, it's, we've seen a lot of news. I think federally they've, they've decriminalized cannabis or they've, they've legalized cannabis to some extent on a federal level now in the U S I, I don't. And, and I know that's all like kind of bureaucratic and there's a lot of ins and outs to that are involved mm -hmm. in that, but um, what was it? It was the Moore Act that just went through, um, and they passed it. And so these are these are huge, huge um, milestones in this in this issue. This is a more than ten thousand year old plant that has been benefiting mankind since 
the inception of our relationship with it. And it really wasn't until the last 70 years, 19, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, that cannabis even became illegal to grow and distribute and sell and consume in America. And that was put forth by Harry Anslinger, William Randolph Hearst, and um, Carnegie Mellon, Andrew Carnegie Mellon. I think that's his name. But it was basically... You know, Harry Anslinger wanted to wanted more control. William Randolph Hearst, the hemp hemp was infringing upon his paper empire. Mm-hmm. Carnegie Mellon, hemp was infringing on their steel empire. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford had just made a car made out of hemp fibers that was more durable, stronger, um, better, uh, lighter than making it out of steel parts. And these guys were really threatened in their business enterprises. And so they set out to demonize and make the cannabis plant illegal. I mean, cannabis was cannabis hemp. Our country was founded on it. Uh, Farmers of the original American colonies were mandated to grow hemp to pay Great Britain in taxes with Mm -hmm. because the most powerful military operation on the planet at that time, the British Navy, used hemp for just about everything they did. It was their most valued uh, material and resource. So, you know, when you start to learn about the history of this thing, the science behind it, it really, you start to, (laughs) you know, you start to go, what? We've been totally lied to. We've been totally manipulated. There's been all sorts of bureaucratic walls put up around this thing for what purpose and really what else are we being lied to about you know i mean (laughs) to me to step a little bit into the the plant medicine world you know i look at plant medicine as being part of a pyramid and cannabis is really the fundamental the foundational plant medicine you know and cannabis um, I think even Joe Biden recently said that he believed cannabis was a gateway drug. That's, you know, a fucking, and, and in some it's respects, a bit of, yeah, it's a little bit outdated. Cannabis is a gateway into fucking healing, health, and mm-hmm. well-being. Yeah. And it's really, you know, the fundamental herb, it's a fundamental herb in Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, going back even farther than that, there's some really incredible mythology, not even mythology, but just history around the cannabis plant with the Dogon tribe of West Africa. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar, but the Dogon tribe has a annual cannabis celebration. And they celebrate cannabis because it's in their their origin as a people that the, the beings from the Sirius stars came down visited the Dogon tribe and brought them the cannabis plant and said, this plant will bring you peace and it'll bring you, you know, health and well-being. And you can use this plant to do basically whatever you need. Yeah. And they have all of these cave drawings that depict this stuff. And before we even had the, the telescopes 
to see that there were serious stars. They had drawn them out perfectly in the constellations in these cave drawings. And this famous French explorer discovered all this. And it's really fascinating stuff, you know, to think about the fact that cannabis has really been the peace bringing plant forever. And no matter what the government tries to do or how we try to demonize it or stigmatize it, it continues to emerge as this remedy for human ills. So, you know, I'm a big fan of it. I'm super uh, passionate about spreading the truth of this plant and doing whatever I can to open people's minds up. It's been interesting, you know, with even with my family members who never would have considered cannabis as a as a therapeutic option and they're calling me up asking me about you know what would i recommend to help them get sleep or to help them deal with back pain or whatever it might be and mm -hmm. that's really you know that's huge you know that's, that's huge and we can all do that we can all do that with our family you know mm -hmm. because talking about these types of issues at the dinner table it open people it opens people's minds up to the validity of these these plants as medicine. Yeah. Amazing. Evan, look, I'm going to have you back for a round two sometime when we can find a time that works. Uh, Definitely. This has been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find out more about you? You can check out my website, ebonbritton.com. That's sort of my hub. Uh, you can even reach out to me there. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EDS Britain. I'm also on Patreon. If you're down for everything I'm doing, love to have you there. Love to have you support. Um, that's patreon.com forward slash EDS Britain. And then check out my podcast, The Ebb and Flow, available on all podcast platforms. Uh, and I also am on YouTube. I've just started cranking out uh, some some more video content and you can check me out there as well. And Boomer, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, we're going to link to all this in the show notes. Evan, it's been an absolute pleasure. And everybody listening, look, this is just the beginning of many conversations. So thank you for coming on the show today, Evan. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. One thing Evan and I didn't get to was his use of psychedelics and a discussion around spirituality. If you guys want to see Evan back for round two, shout at me on the socials. I'm at Decoding Superhuman on pretty much every platform out there, but also send an email, podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com or leave a comment on any social media channel. Love to hear from you guys and course if you enjoyed the podcast head on over to apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating each of those ratings really really helps the show notes for this one are again at decoding superhuman.com slash ebon that's e-b-e-n and have an absolutely epic day